I'm Leslie Hepburn. Before I gave my life to Jesus, I had fought severe depression and anxiety most of my life. And most of my life, I felt like I was fighting these things alone. I wasn't. I just didn't know that yet. As I grew into adulthood, I always felt a pull towards something bigger than me. There was always a feeling that there was something more waiting. Like if I could just see past this fog of depression I was battling, if I could just be stronger, work harder to make myself better, I'd finally be able to see what it was. The fight went on for years. I hit an even lower low when over a year ago, I was given a medical diagnosis. Not just the depression and anxiety, but tumors in my adrenal glands. Months of testing and blood work later, I was scheduled for my last set of labs and a CT scan to identify the exact locations of the tumors. After these tests, a surgery would be scheduled. The night before the CT scan, I remember praying. While praying, I was immediately calmed. I felt at peace, and for someone with my battles, that's saying a lot. I put myself into Jesus' hands and asked him to walk with me, to take care of my family and watch over them through this next set of struggles. I asked him to be on my side and help me fight through whatever was to happen next. The next morning, I went into the hospital for my appointments, and the week after that, I was called into the specialist's office to go over my results. With the same feeling of peace, I waited to hear what the doctor had to say. She simply said, there's nothing, absolutely nothing, nothing in the blood work and nothing on the scan. <laughs> this has never happened before, and I've been specializing in this for over 25 years. I knew right then that Jesus had joined me in my fight. I welcomed him into my heart, and he worked a miracle. My life now is still full of struggles. Those struggles are not as consuming as they were before. I know what peace feels like. I know what was always waiting for me. I know when I can't see past the fog, all I need to do is reach out my hand and Jesus will be there with me, helping me through. for her uh, testimony this morning and uh, I love how there's uniquenesses in all of these testimonies how God meets us where we're at brings us to where he wants us to be and just been blessed in over these weeks hearing those testimonies good morning great to see you this morning turn to someone and say I'm really glad you're here do that would you really glad you're here Danny come on up here real quick hey everybody this is Pastor Dan Hamrick and Dan this is uh, we're coming up we made an announcement uh, about a month ago uh, that you have accepted a position in Indiana and uh, will be, uh, be leaving us, you and your wife and family, in 17 plus years you've been here. Love this guy. Would you show your appreciation to him? He said, am I going to talk? Do I need a microphone? I don't know. You're not going to. No, I'm talking. <laughs> but you're preaching next week. I am. So next week, don't be, you know, try not to mess up. <laughs> Would you do it? But he's going to speak next week. I'll be your last Sunday with us. You're going to be around for a few more weeks doing some things. Uh, and we have a little gathering going away time for Dan next, uh, and your family, next Sunday evening at 6 o'clock. Uh, it's going to be down, I think, in the chapel area or the gym and such. We'd love to have you come out, get a chance to, to greet and to meet. But uh, we love you, wish you the very, very best. And uh, we always, I say, the greatness of a church isn't what comes in, but what goes out, you're one of the very best. Mm. You're one of the very best. So thank would you thank him again?
Hey, somebody had said, hey, we want to make sure that we communicated correctly. The annual business meeting is not tonight. It's going to be on the 12th. And so just in case you were excited about coming out for that, uh, you can plan ahead for that. Just want to make sure you got it. If you have your Bibles with you, would you take them and turn to uh, 1 John. 1 John, we're going to start in chapter 1. Continuous series that we began last week called Certain Faith, so that you may know. John, we have indicated one of his primary reasons for writing in this book of 1 John is to, is to communicate that you can have eternal life and know that you have eternal life. And probably one of the biggest questions that I'm asked as a pastor is, how do I know if I'm really saved? I get that question a lot. And so working people through that, how can we uh, know that we're really saved? And last week we had that time together. Now today we're going to go back into chapter 1 and kind of begin a, a, a work through this book because John, most scholars, many scholars believe, that he wrote it actually after the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation was written while he was on exile on the island of Patmos. He was released from that exile very, very late in life. It would have been later in the first century AD, so it had been between 90 and 100 AD, so he's quite an elderly man. And they believe he's writing the church in these three epistles, first, second, third John. He's addressing some issues that are in the church at that time. And he's, and he's dealing with some things that are happening in the church. First of all, their fire is kind of flickering a little bit. Because these are not individuals who had a fresh testimony uh, that Jesus is alive. They, these are not the contemporaries. Sixty plus years has passed since the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, the, uh, the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. The church was alive and on fire. They're now flickering a little bit, a little bit like um, in the book of Hebrews. You had second and third generation believers who were kind of going off the testimony of their parents and their parents' parents. And so their, their faith is flickering and he's trying to reignite that fire. Stay steady, stay strong. They also are, are f getting a little tired of being so different. Um, the word hagias means holy or saint, the word for saint. And, and, and it, it's different. That when you're a believer, you're different than the culture around you. You're different than just simply the everyday. And frankly, they were really tired of looking so different. There was a distinction. And he's saying, hey, it's okay. Because as a believer in Jesus Christ, you do look different from the world and the world around you. But, but the other thing that he's dealing with, and it's, it's really sewn into the fabric of this book, is that he's dealing with an attack in the church. And it's not an outward attack. It's not an outward in. For all intents and purposes, the first great wave of persecution of the church from the government and from society had relieved a little bit. And so they're in a relatively accepted place. They're still not particularly liked, but they're accepted. And so what begins to happen is inside of the church, they begin to see some um, wrong teachings come in. As a matter of just history, the church has actually done its best when it's under the greatest persecution. That is so contrary, it's counterintuitive, but, but the greater the heat from the outside, the purer the church on the inside, because they, they first of all, they didn't have time for these silly debates, but the other side of it is, is that who wants, to, who wants to do something unless you really believe this stuff? Who wants to just identify with people that nobody likes and they all hate it and they're gonna be persecuted? But inside the church, what is happening is you're seeing some errors come in 
One of the most prevalent ones is um, it's called Gnosticism, or uh, if you could spell it this way, Gnosis, G-N-O, Gnostics. Uh, the word is Gnosis, the knowing ones. These are people who love to sit around and think up new things uh, uh, th- that the church should be about. Um, these are, if I would put it this way in the modern, these are people who love to sit around and drink coffee and conjecture about what Christianity is or should be rather than actually out there being what Christianity should be. And so, can't identify, can we? But those individuals love to theorize about everything. And so what's happening is there's all kinds of errors coming in. One, one ditch of the error is that our, we, we're never gonna be able to do anything good. We're lousy, the body's terrible. Everything about the body and the flesh is terrible. It's really about the mind and about the spirit. So therefore, just do whatever you wanna do because this doesn't have anything to do with it anyway as long as your spirit's okay. And then there's the other ditch. It's the ditch that, man, everything's bad. Food's bad, sex is bad, life is bad, fun is bad, it's all wrong. And it brought about this extreme asceticism that I have to discipline almost to the point of of harming the body to break it into alignment, almost an extreme perfectionism. It's interesting because you see semblances of that even in the body today called different things. There's an extreme legalism on one side, extreme liberty on the other side, and, and there's this fight going on. And John is writing to them to make his joy complete, and the only way his joy is gonna be complete is if they experience the same joy he's enjoying. And he says, unless you know what it is to be born of God, that's a theme throughout the book, you can't know joy. But one of the greatest reasons that believers struggle with joy is because of broken fellowship with God. It's not an issue of salvation, it's an issue of broken fellowship that, but Dan, Steph, you guys are sitting here, I'm gonna use you as an illustration since it's my very last time. I know you guys get along extremely well, but sometimes you don't because Dan makes just lunkhead moves, it happens. And so Dan does something wrong it's not that you're not married, you're still married, you, you still love each other, but you just can't stand each other at that moment, right? No, in that moment, there's broken fellowship. And in our relationship with God, it's during those broken fellowship times where experiencing and sensing God's forgiveness is really hard. And if there's a second question that I get as common as how do I know if I'm really saved, it's pastor, how do I, how do I sense? I don't feel forgiven, I don't sense forgiven. And sometimes, sometimes it's because of broken fellowship, sometimes because of an, almost an overactive conscience that I just feel guilty all the time. And so John begins to walk them through how to experience that. And all these things I just talked about you're gonna get semblances of it in these first several verses. Look what he says, verse one. That which was seen in the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have touched, uh, looked at, and our hands have touched. In other words, we're eyewitnesses. I touched him, he really was alive, he's not a ghost. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we've seen it, testify to it, we proclaim to you, the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. 
We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Some manuscripts say your joy complete, and I'd already shared how both of them actually make sense in the passage. This is the message that we have heard from him and declared to you, God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us and if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but doesn't do what he commands is a liar, and the truth isn't in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. John is, uh, by the way, you've probably heard the word sin as much as you have heard in any service in recent days. We don't like that word. We, we don't really care for that word. We talk about sin, but we don't really want to focus on it. And yet, when it comes to this whole thing of fellowship and relationship, understand Jesus, there's this common thought, Jesus came to the world to show us how to live. Well, that's true, but that's not it alone. He came for a purpose. When he died on the cross, rose from the dead, it was actually for a payment. There actually was something that took place. He carried our sins. He paid for our sins. And so if we're going to have fellowship, and we're going to talk about love, I think next week Dan's going to get into that a little bit. We're going to talk about the Holy Spirit later. But he deals right up front with one of the main things that impacts our relationship and our fellowship and by virtue our sense of forgiveness and that is just simply sin and he walks this tightrope between saying okay don't sin and yet he's trying to go against this concept that you know what this extreme legalism or asceticism that you're going to have a perfection he's, he's walking that line where he's saying you're forgiven now walk in that forgiveness don't don't give in to that whole thing in your life we want to live this way to please him. We want to have relationship and fellowship. So how do we do it? Well, John hits four things that jump out to me. And the first one is just be honest with ourselves and with God. Quit lying about it. Notice what he says in this passage, verse 8, and, uh, 8 to 10. He says, if we claim to be without sin, well, then we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth isn't in us. In other words, we're lying, we're lying to ourselves. And by the way, I heard a pastor say this one time, and it is so true. Never underestimate our ability to lie to ourselves. But he says, but also get honest with God, which means confessing it to him. Be honest about it. Quit denying it. Quit rewriting it. Quit redefining what sin is. Quit, just, just be real about this. There's a word, it's really interesting. Uh, in Philippians chapter one, verse 10, you don't have to go there. Paul uses it, 
And uh, in, in this passage, it's interesting, the NIV translates it this way. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that when you stand before God, you will live pure and blameless. That's how Paul says it, at least in the NIV. But in, the, in another version, in, in the Greek specifically, it says, so that you may live sincerely and blamelessly before God. And that word sincerely in the Latin is, um, it's sinacera, sinacera, without wax. What? I was with you, Pastor, right up until, I mean, I thought it was going to be something really profound, and then you say something like that, without wax. Because sculptors of those days would sculpt out of marble and stone, and the really good sculptors would sculpt in such a way as to create this, this polish finish. They were the best. They were the sought-after sculptors. But there were unscrupulous sculptors that to cover up the defects would take wax, meld it, and push it into the pores to give the appearance of polish when it was really just full of cracks. And it was said that a person who was honest and real and authentic was sinacera without wax. That's what John's saying. Don't be a phony. First of all, you know better. Second of all, God already knows. And if I want to experience that forgiveness in an ongoing sense in my walk, it's acknowledging my failures, acknowledging my, my, my humanity. Number two, take responsibility for it. Notice he says in this passage, if we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And I find that so interesting because God already knows all the stuff we've done. And God, by the way, as we, as we blow it, as we sin as believers, God already knows. I mean, if we know anything about God, he knows. And, and so why is that necessary? It's because in the act of confession, there's a, there's a spirit of humility that enters in, but there's also a sense of responsibility which says even as a believer, yes, I know I'm saved, and yes, I know he's... He died for my sins but it's this act of contrition and humility that acknowledges that God I still need your grace today and maybe we need to 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 define what we're talking about to actually define what sin is I mean sin means to miss the mark right it's like a target you miss the mark it's one of the the definitions of sin but in Scripture, there's actually, there's two definitions of sin, and I love how people are always arguing about which definition of sin there really is. There's the legal definition of sin. This is the definition of sin. It's anything that is outside of the will of God. Anything. So even if you do something you don't know that it's outside the will of God, um, you're still responsible for it, and that's the definition of sin. By the way, that is accurate. Um, I hadn't thought of this in years, but years ago when uh, Tammy and I were uh, trying out, uh, we were going to go uh, to Iowa to, to look at the school that we were thinking about going to, um, the pastor of our church 
uh, his wife, Christy, Christy uh, had family that was in the same area, and so they said, why don't you take our car? Christy will go out with you. So he just that's two for one. It was a seven-hour trip. And I was like, great. And so I'm driving. And as I'm going through Burlington, Iowa area, I did not know about this, uh, this fact. I do now. Is that in Iowa, I think it was 65 or 70 mile an hour zones. But when you get within, I think it's 10 miles of any population of more than 50,000 people, it automatically goes down to 55. I did not know that. The police officer who kindly pulled me over explained that to me. (laughs) By the way, if you think it's embarrassing to get pulled over by a police officer, try doing it with your pastor's wife in the back seat (laughs) driving his car. And I could easily say, but I didn't. By the way, is anybody else irritated that on 69, it's 70, 75, 70, 75, and you never know which one you're going to, you know what I'm talking about? Because what messes you up, I don't know if I can go 80 or 85. I'm not sure where (laughs) I'm supposed to go. (laughs) Ignorance of the law is no excuse, right? That's sin. And so, so people who would say, well, but so we don't have to worry about it because you can't, can't do anything about sin anyway. You don't even know sometimes when you're sinning. That is true. That is not actually what John is talking about in this passage. There is the moral definition of sin. That means that anything that is known that is outside of the will of God, because of course, he's, he's our sinful condition, we still have a sinful condition. Technically, any mistake we make is outside of the will of God, right? That's a, that's, we don't have any clue about that. By the way, you know what's really interesting? Both are biblical, because in Scripture, when a, atonement was being made, uh, Leviticus chapter 16, you remember the, I talked to you about the scapegoat, the scape, there's two goats, and there's, there's one goat, and there's a second goat, and Jesus is represents both. What's interesting is that first goat, it's for sins committed that people knew they committed. But the scapegoat, it says, that the blood of the first goat would be laid upon the head of the second goat alive, and that goat would carry the sin into the wilderness for sins committed in ignorance. They did not know. And so when you look at that, it's not just the things we know, but the things we don't know. John is saying, I'm dealing with the stuff you know. You know better than this. You can know this. You've been taught this. You you know what obedience is. And yes, Jesus has to care for our condition of sin carried on the cross, but he says this fellowship thing is so impacted by these decisions that we make, and he says, take responsibility, confess it. Number three, ask and accept his forgiveness. I think I need to rename it rest in his forgiveness. Notice what he says in this passage. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you don't sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And it's interesting, John, as he's writing to them, is not writing as the this guy who is beating them up. He's writing them as his dear children, his spiritual children. These are the ones that he has responsibility over and he cares for them like you're his own kids. And he says that you can, 
you can know that your ongoing sense of forgiveness by resting in his forgiveness. By the way, I, I just, I, I think it's interesting because Jesus said um, in uh, Matthew 11, he said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, all of you who are burdened down. I'm not going to change what Jesus said, but I'm going to apply it just a little bit differently. Come to me, all of you who are weighed down by this sense of failure and sin. And I will give you rest. Later in that passage, he says, rest for your souls. Rest. And we can rest in his forgiveness by resting in his nature. Notice he says, who goes to the Father in our defense. I, I feel like there's becoming a theme in some of my teaching, preaching in recent days, and it's on the character and the nature of God. And I think it's because if we could understand better the character and the nature of God, it would make this thing of faith so much more uh, real, meaningful, but also it would be so much more, for many people, inviting to understand who he is. I I don't think it's any mistake that Satan is um, trying to attack, not just family, but is trying to attack fatherhood. Because it's this idea, I believe, that Satan's number one goal is to dishonor uh, and, and, and to fame the Heavenly Father. That's his goal. And so if he can somehow destroy the imagery of one of the primary metaphors that he uses to describe our relationship, which is our Heavenly Father, if he can taint that image, he can taint how we perceive that we could possibly come near to God. What's interesting is that Jesus spends significant time in his ministry trying to repair that image. That when he teaches us to pray, he he cries out, Abba, Father. In the garden, Mark says, he cried out, Abba, Father, Abba, Daddy. When Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, and the loving father, he says, this is, this is like the kingdom. This is what the heavenly father is like. And the father embraces and loves. He's restoring that imagery because he wants us to understand that we have a heavenly father who, who wants to forgive. The Psalms recognize it. He's abounding in love. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love and all who call on you. Over and over, we are told that God wants to forgive. And so rest in his nature, Father. Number two, rest in his provision. He says that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for sin and not just for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. That word atonement, I just, I, it struck me this morning. Uh, Dan, you know why you, we go to colleges and we learn about how to be a pastor? You know what we learn? We learn how to take 
uh, theological terms and make it easy to understand. That's what it must be. Because I was just thinking this morning how we learn these big words and then we spend the rest of our life trying to communicate what that means. Uh, like for justification. Well, I always say, well, justification means just as if I never did it. That's what it means, you know. Atonement. Let me teach you what atonement means when it says that Jesus is the atonement. At one meant. At one meant, it is to take us who are far from God and make us one with God again through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way, reconciliation. So, Dan and Stephanie, continuing to pick on you just a little bit, get a little bit of broken fellowship. You guys repair, confess, forgive. You guys are reconciled. You are at one meant again and he said Jesus did this for you and he didn't just do this for you once he continues to do this for you and then we rest on his ongoing work I I mentioned that last week but he uses this phrase he uses this phrase that he is the atoning sacrifice and he says this he says um, he says um, he represents, sorry, it says in verse, uh, chapter two, verse one to two. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That word means one who comes alongside and continues to make our case. And so you're here. And there was a place in your life, maybe at an altar, maybe in a, a chair, or maybe at your home where you, You said, Jesus, I I ask you to come into my life and to forgive me, but you struggle. For whatever reason, you struggle with a sense of forgiveness. John writes to us and he says, rest. Rest in what he's done for you. Rest in his character and nature that loves you. And rest at what he's continuing to do for you. You're not alone rest and then the final thing he mentions is break the cycle stop the cycle don't keep doing what you're doing my dear children I write these things to you so that you will not sin and I love people who read this passage. Well, that's not what it really means. I mean, you can't do that because we, we, you know, we're on this side, one of these sides. Forget the side. This side over here can't help it because everything we do is bad, and so we can't help but sin. And then there are those who are on this other side that are saying, oh, man, I got to live perfect. I got to be perfect. No, here's the deal. Warren Wearsby said this. Love it. John writes this very simply. You don't have to keep doing what you're doing. The thing that is bringing a broken fellowship in this relationship, stop that cycle. It amazes me how we as believers, I don't think any of us would deny that God is able to rescue a person from addiction. We've got multiple testimonies that tell that story. 
Some of you are those who've been rescued from alcoholism and a domination in your life. Some of you have been rescued from a, an, a, a tremendous promiscuous lifestyle. And we believe God can do that, but we don't believe God can rescue us from everyday judgmentalism, bad attitude, gossip, or anger. Oh, no, I say you can't do that. That's just the way we are. What? If he can deal with that stuff, you don't think he can deal with that, that thing in your life that you know is stopping you from enjoying and experiencing the joy of fellowship? And he says, you do this when you walk in the light, right? Walk in what you know. And then secondly, he says, living in Christ, in him, it's this abiding sense of his presence. I'm just going to stay connected to the vine. I'm going to ask. I know this is what God wants to do in my life. I know he wants to deal with this in my life. But I keep, keep blowing it. Don't justify it. Give it to him. Yeah, but what if I blow it again? Then give it to him again. Don't give up. Because you're going to find that as we are walking in the obedience with a sincere heart, just being authentic, being real, and I'm asking for him to help me through these things and to, and to, to spend my time in him, you'll find one victory can bring forth a second victory can make that third victory and that fourth victory. And this is not about perfection. I mean, I know most of us in our marriages, we probably try to do everything correctly, but we don't always. Doesn't mean you're not married. It doesn't even mean you don't love the person. It just means you messed up. Own it. And then say, I'm going to, by God's help, be different in the future. And it is amazing the sense of release and forgiveness that comes when that's our walk with the Lord. Father, I thank you this morning. I, I realize you talking about sin isn't the most um, pleasant thing in the world. And yet, all of us can identify with it because all of us have. And my heart really for two people today, two types of people, it's for the one as John says, has never been born of God and they don't know the joy and the freedom from trusting in Christ and having their sins forgiven. And maybe today you're saying, I'm really tired of kind of just hanging this stuff in my life or just dealing with it or justifying it. I, I want to own it. I want to ask God to forgive me. And Jesus, I believe that you really are who you say you are. I ask you to forgive my sins. Come into my life. Lead my life. I want to live in you. And I pray for the one today who 
perhaps has struggled with this for years and it might be because of constant failures or it might just be, simply be because of the guilt you carry that you've had a hard time releasing rest rest in who he is rest in what he has done rest in what he continues to do and enjoy the fellowship he has for you as his child thank you Lord we thank you in Jesus name amen 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 Amen. Can you give the Lord a hand? He's a great God. Would you stand with me? But stand, greet one another, encourage one another. If you'd like to pray with someone, we've got prayer partners that will be up here to meet with you. God bless you as you go.